The early morning, this is my time. It's kind of light and kind of dark. My friend, the moon is here. I can watch now and no one watches me. They think I'm asleep. I can touch my hair, feel the softness of my skin. I look so skinny, like a skinny bottle under these tight covers. I push the air around me with the palms of my hand. This is my space. I make shadow figures on the walls. One of the other girls is brilliant at this. She can make rabbits and ducks and make them talk. She can't walk. I whisper to her. Maybe she will hear me in her dreams. Dora, Dora, you can walk now. Get up and walk. I am learning their names. I'm getting to know them. What's behind the name? The nurses know the names, but I don't think they know what's behind the names. I still stare and wonder at them. Their names, their illnesses, their crippled bodies, their being here. Don't they know? Don't they see what it all means? I know they have a secret life too. They must have, in another world. Maybe when I sleep. They are coming into my world. Maybe they will tell me where they learned to behave like this. Like everything was normal. I can hear the mugs rattle on the trays as someone brings them down the few stairs in the pantry. The day is really about to begin. Before the night nurses go, they wake us and give us each a tin mug of ice-cold milk. First the babies. The cot sides rattle and then fall down with an enormous clang. The babies are starting to cry as they come out of their sleep, pulling themselves up, bleary-eyed, wide-eyed, some silent, some crying. Why did they have to wake us up? I arrived here on a warm day in late May. A quiet, somewhat shy seven-year-old, dressed in my Sunday best, not absolutely sure where or what I was going to. Everyone was really trying to be cheerful. At home in the last few days, in the car during the short journey. So cheerful I was worried. What was this place we were going to? It was in fact a grim early Victorian house, which seemed to frown down on me as I got out of the car. Tucked quietly away in suburbia, which had sprung up in its gardens. This was the Children's Orthopaedic Hospital, Castle Avenue, Clontarf. Inside was dark, very dark. Lots of panelling on the walls and a stained glass window just where the stairs turned, letting in little light. I sat on a little bench while my parents went into the office. Outside, my brother and sisters waited. I couldn't know that I wouldn't speak to them for more than another year. Here children were not allowed visit. I would only wave to them from the window. Then it became surreal, like a silent movie. Matron came, took my hand, and ushered me up the stairs, not altering her pace for me. We were now on the middle landing, darker, bigger, much bigger than the hall. At the end I could see doors opening and children gazing, babies silenced by the sight of Matron and the newest patient. The silence was broken by a wail, a long, loud wail of realisation. Suddenly I knew exactly where I was. It was brilliant. I, I didn't... I, I, I mean, I was quite, it was rare there. But when I came home, I found it very strange. Extremely. I would just cry to go back. But yet when I was there, 
I, I cried now a few. I mean, it was like everybody else. I'd be crying there. But when I went home, I just found it so strange. I just couldn't. I couldn't settle. It took me about six months to settle at home. Why do you think that was? Because there's nobody in uniform. Do you know what I mean? It was because the white all the time. The nurses' outfits. The, all the white coats. The hats. And then when I come home, then it was put down to play. It'd be millions of children. And it'd be all, it'd be all run around. But I couldn't. I couldn't run around with them. Do you know what I mean? Because I had the calibers and that on. And I was kind of treated different when I came home. I was like a different category in the family. Totally. Towards everybody else. Because uh, some of them, I didn't even know half my brothers and sisters. Because I'd been in the hospital that much and they would, wouldn't have seen me. Because only my mother and father was allowed up to the hospital. And as far as I got older, they could come up. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't know them. Because we didn't grow up together, you know what I mean? We hadn't got the bond, like like an army family, now, and that's what I felt totally off putting about home. I just wanted to go back and just I would have been content to stay there, but now I'm home and you know growing up I wouldn't I wouldn't go back at all. Oh, I'd never asked to go home because it was never you know it was never said. Well, I'd be let out for weekends and that, but yeah I think I'd never get back. I was just dying to get back to the place. I mean, it's what I was, what I was used to. And then at home, there's so many in the bedroom, and you have to share the beds. But in the, the hospital, it was just, you know, bed each. You're all in one line. Where it wasn't. And when I when I was at home, there was six, six in one bedroom. So it was so different. Having to share things, where in, in Clontarf was yeah, everyone had their own, all your own stuff. But it was so it was so. It was, and to me, it was so different to home. wasn't to know then how lucky I was, nor did I realise it while I was there. I was one of the lucky ones. There were children there who'd come straight from the maternity hospital, who'd never known a parent, rejected at birth. And there were children who were severely disabled. And children like Valerie, taken from the arms of her mother because of polio, and not going home until she was in her early teens. And they all seemed so incredibly settled and content. They knew the routine, what to expect what the limits were. Suddenly I had gone from being a seven-year-old who went to school, played with dolls on the back step with my friends, played skipping and rounders in the lengthening summer evenings, looking forward to school holidays, to having to sit in bed all day, surrounded by people I didn't know. School in the hospital was just coming to an end and anyhow was too strange for me to enjoy it. I'd come in on a Sunday and it was another week before I saw my parents again. Sunday was visiting day, and I watched those stairs at the end of the hall, the long hall I'd walked up a week before. I've got the best bed. I always see the first visitors on Sunday. They come up the stairs. First their heads, their shoulders, their bodies, their legs. Then they turn, their faces. I know my parents live at the bottom of those stairs. They've moved house and brought all their furniture I don't know which way they've got all the chairs and stuff down there, but I know how I'd put them. Just at the bottom of the stairs. I can go there any time. I can jump out of this bed, run past all those doors and... No. No, there is a soldier at the top of the stairs. A very tall, toy soldier. 
his little beady blue eyes, and I know he watches me in my bed. He'll never let me down those stairs. Like all the other children before me, I settled down eventually. What else was there to do? But I never lost that sense of wonder. Why should it be? How could it be? Children being children, we found companionship amongst each other. We fed on each other's loneliness, I suppose you could say. We spent so much time in bed. Some children were bedridden anyhow. So we gave flight to our imaginations. We told fairy tales that could never come true. Devised plots we would never hatch. Gave nurses ever more elaborate and ridiculous nicknames. And many of us lived among the pages of our books. In stories that were more real than you can imagine. Weekdays were drab affairs soaked in routine that you had to go through to get to Sunday, visiting day. Sunday was soaked in an air of expectation and happiness. Breakfast tasted nicer. Nurses seemed cheerier. Somehow you whiled away the time until the chaplains came on their tours of the wards, doling out handfuls of dolly mixtures. Lunch was picked at and pushed away and somehow eventually eaten under the stern gaze of a nurse. Visitors had to wait outside until the bell rang to admit them. I can't say they streamed up the stairs and fanned out to the wards as I've seen in hospitals since. There just weren't that many of them. But even for children with no visitors, every new face was a source of excitement and hope. When my mother and father came as they did each and every week, they had to find time for everyone, not just for me. When you're going to the babies, um, and they would all give you a great big smile and hold out their arms to be taken up. Um, and they seemed to be... Uh, not have, they, they never had that many visitors. Uh, and they were only so happy to see you. Uh, and and uh, a lovely smile on their face. Well, I always remember them as, as when you walk in, particularly one little lad on the right-hand side. Uh, and he'd sit there and there'd be a great big smile on his face as you walked in. And the hands would go up. Like, like he wanted uh, attention. Uh, and uh, the, the, the smile, it, it, it was fabulous. Uh, and you go over and talk to them. And they'd be, they, they, once you get talking to them, though, you, you couldn't go away because he didn't want you to go away. And um, then when you did go away, then they'd start this rocking back and forth, back and forth all the time. Uh, and I, 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 I watched them and wondered, you know, why did they do that? What made them do it? And they all had the same thing. You'd have to bring in enough sweets, um, and, 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 and so you should. I mean, the, the children never saw any, uh, and, and they were absolutely delighted sure, in itself to see the pleasure on their face. But it was unbelievable. Um, sweets, it was heaven for them. But you had to go around, you had to say hello. And the trouble was they didn't want you to leave. That was, that was the big problem. You could spend all day there. It was only once a week. And then she couldn't come every... Every week, because in them days, they hadn't got the money. It's very poverty kind of stricken. Well, not just myself, everybody. You know, the, the people wouldn't be able to come up every week. They wouldn't have the bus fare. Or they probably wouldn't come without sweets for the children. Do you know what I mean? But they used to give us sweets in the hospital. They had some farm that it was up on the, not on the brand, it was up on the first or the second floor. They had a big storeroom. And if you'd done anything, they'd give you sweets. So we used to kind of all want to do everything. 
to get something. But on Sunday, as they used to come up, everyone had visited from two to four, I think, or two to six. Then they'd all go. And that'd be for a week. You wouldn't see them for a week. But then if anyone was sick in the family, they couldn't come up, say for maybe two or three weeks. And... So you vaguely remember them, do you know what I mean? I can, I can vaguely remember my mother. I can still picture her right, but I can't... I couldn't tell, tell you anything about her. Do you know what I mean? Because, I mean, it'd be only once a week I'd see her, and... I was only a child, and I probably... wouldn't have the interest. Because I, I used to... I, at first... I didn't know who they were. You know, this man and woman coming to see me every week. But they used to say to your, your mummy and daddy, but I didn't know. Do you know what I mean? As little one, being with all the all just the, the girls on the veranda, I never kind of I never copped down that was my mother and father until late until I was about say about seven or eight. I was a little bit younger, about six, and then I just kind of dawned that these are my real mother and father, not just. People come to see. In the sixties, I was um, um, uh, one of the what they used to call schools examiners, religion, religious not catechism examiners, and we went around every every school in the diocese every day, four of us in a car, and um, so we worked from Monday to Friday non-stop, and then the weekends was relatively free. So. At the weekends, we were all given different chaplaincies. We didn't work in parishes. And um, so one of the chaplaincies I was given, the same mass, the place the same mass was, was the orthopedic hospital. So that's how I was there. I think I was there for about 10 years, 11 years maybe. And uh, the mass was always, I think it was half past 10, was it, on a Sunday morning? But I always thought, the, as I was saying before, I always thought the most important work there for me was, uh, you know, not just the celebration of the mass, that had its own importance, I know, but the the meeting afterwards, meeting the meeting the patients and sort of uh, meeting the nurses. So I'd start the rounds, and um, yeah, I I would say this is probably true of any priest working in in a hospital at that in a children's hospital at that time, that like every ward you went into, you got. An, an unbelievable welcome. You know, there was. You never went in and had to, as it were, fight for attention. You never had to go in and announce your presence. I always felt when the priest went in, there was, there was this uh, um, uh, tremendous welcome, and and you had to go over to every bed, not just to one or two. And if you didn't go, if you missed out a bed, that child would be up. You know, asking, why didn't you come over to me? And you had to go over to every bed. And sometimes it would be just to um, um, say a, a few words. Um, and I knew, <clears throat> I knew there were some children uh, who, who seemed to have very little contact uh, with family at all. And um, I remember some of them would cry a bit, you know. And and. Uh, um, Sure, all I could do was to reassure them that they'd be all right. And will you be my friend? I think that was the term they used. That was very important to them. They wanted you to be their friend. You're, will you be my friend now? And like, 
um, there were some of them who were, who, who were, were, were visited almost every Sunday um, because I think some of them live fairly locally in the north side area and it might have been relatively easy for parents to come in, you know. But there were some children from the country, from, 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 uh, uh, I remember one child from Kilkee, you know. Um, and she got very few visits. And, um, so, so they, 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 the children who were visited, I felt, you know, had, had the strength and the security of their parents and their families. But there were others, and, 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 um, this was the thing that they wanted. You'll be, you'll, you'll be my friend. And it was a kind of um. I wonder is it uh, out of their sense of kind of aloneness that they were saying this? You know that they. They missed, whoever their families were, I would think. Oh, you see, I thought it was lovely because I was nineteen years of age, couldn't get up in the mornings, and we had school from one to five which was brilliant. I threw myself up on a bicycle and cycled around the corner from King Cora Road. And I liked it because I loved teaching. I've always loved teaching and I thought it was unusual. And uh, I didn't even feel sorry for the children. But you see, I'm a child of that age because I taught in Golden Bridge as a student teacher. It was wonderful for these kids because they were just thrown there otherwise, you know. And if they were at home, they were standing in barrels. They were reared standing in a Cooper's barrel, you know, because they were handicapped. Eileen and all the kids I had, and they, they had to be kept out of the way in the tenements in the city. So they, they were in the corner in a barrel. The hips, a lot of congenital hips, they all had calipers and uh, crutches and that. You know, and of course, when they were, and a lot of them slid along on their bums. And when they're in hospital, nobody notices that they're different. They hate leaving hospital because then they're different, you see and uh, they had company, they wouldn't be at school if they were at home. So to that extent, they were happy, you know, and children are very resilient. They are whispering my name. The solemn doctor with the snow-white beard and the booming voice was here. I always look at his toes. His words come from his toes. They have to, the way they rumble out so slowly. His kindly blue eyes watch me. He nods like Santa does when you're telling him how good you've been. But I know something is going to happen. The regime was just so hush-hush. There was this pervading sense of silence. Yes, there was always noises, hospital noises, but nothing was said by way of explanation. Why was I here? I had an operation about two months after I arrived, which I knew nothing about until it happened. I sensed something different in the attitude of the nurses, of the consultant, and the rest was left to my imagination. Then I was in traction for a couple of weeks, and by the autumn I'd started school. My stay just went on and on. It was as if the attitude was, why does she want to go home? It was always, we'll see... Soon, soon, next week. The powers that be were very reluctant to part with information. As far as they were concerned, the matron, the consultants, that's just the way things were. They grew very annoyed at my even asking questions. I got so desperate I would even ask questions of the kitchen staff. And when my parents came I would ask them. But they of course believed in the almighty power of the consultant themselves and never questioned it. 
you know, nowhere in the bed, in, in the toughest children's hospital you could pick in the 70s, mother would not be encouraged to carry her child into theatre. You know, that wasn't the thinking, it wasn't the climate of the day. I'm not saying it was, you know, I mean, I, to me it was wrong, but that's not neither here nor there. I would have, you know, neither would I have stood up and screamed that in those days. I would now, but I wouldn't then, because I wouldn't have had the age or the confidence or anything else to do it in those days. But um, that was the climate. Do you, do you understand? Like, there is no way today that any person in this hospital would be having surgery without it being fully explained and as the syllables of one being backed up. You know, if it was a child, the parents would be told, you know, what to expect. You know, and rightly so. It's rightly so, but on top of that, like, if they weren't, they would, you, they would just do. The climate of those times was that all consultants were paternalistic. Upstairs where the boys were was a much noisier place. We girls were directly below them and we could hear shouting and whoops of laughter and hard boots and crutches racing across the floor. They used to go in for this ritual-like stamping and shouting, creating as much frenzied noise as possible before someone came and quietened them down. Then peace reigned for a few minutes. Us girls, we lazed around, we read, chatted or sneaked in to play with the babies. From my bed I could see the stairs rising and turning out of view. We never went up there, unless it was to the operating theatre. We were consumed with curiosity. On the day of my operation, I desperately wanted to stay awake until I got up there. Joe, who was the maintenance man and the porter, came and carried me up and I fought to stay awake. Everything seemed to be happening in slow motion. I caught one glimpse of a room full of boys, small, tall, skinny, in various degrees of undress, bedridden on crutches. I gulped it all in in a few short seconds, and it was printed forever indelible on my mind. There was a silence as I passed their door. They were obviously awed to see me stretched out in Joe's arms, a few steps from the operating theatre. A place no doubt they wondered about, as I wondered about them. If you were going by the bar, by his ward, you missed, I'm sure, the belt of a boot. Everything was flying when you could when you'd go in there, you know, that someone had come, someone in authority had come and, you know, put the foot down, that sort of thing. But otherwise, it was, it was, oh, and they used to have that, what was it, about going from one ward to the other and the telling one another. You know, it's a saying now, grass on them. <laughs> you used to get laughed at them, you see. You'd be, well, you wouldn't be thinking of anything, you know. The next thing, a boot would go by, or God knows what, it go by your ear or something, you know. There were different. Oh, I remember heading <laughs> upstairs and laughed. I never forgot it. This lad is from Dunny Garden. You know the accent they have, you yeah. see. And he's he was always there too. And I was going away. I was finishing, and he said, "Joe, fuck, you forgot you, you forgot to paint behind the pipes." <laughs> <laughs> the young lads, they'd, they'd be interested in what I'd be doing if I was fixing that, you know, or painting even. And I said, how does that happen? Why are you doing that? You know. They were picking your brains. <laughs> and how do you do it? You know? And of course, the young ones wouldn't be bothered, you see, about painting or anything. So, you know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing I did, do remember vividly, and that was this fella had, had no legs. They were cut off with a mowing machine or something, you see, down here. You see? And they were playing, they had a match out in the playground. And <laughs> 
he was in the gold with his crutch, you see, on the border coming in, well, what happened, I'll go back up again. Anyhow, they blew up half-time, you see. And this was the funny part of it. Blew up half-time, he got up on his hands and walked up to the other goat. <laughs> yeah. See, there was, there was none of them fit to go very far, you know. They could crawl around here and there and all that sort of thing. One fellow had a plan one time of escape. He had a plan of escape, and now I come at it, there was ventilators there, wooden ones, I remember, they were over the beds, just, you know, and I was painting, and I come at this, oh, that's about that size, and I opened it up, and this was it, uh, the escape route, and he had all the bushes and everything, and the railings, he had everything, everything was there. <laughs> he, was going, he was going to run away, and the fellow that do it couldn't walk. I haven't got a calendar, I haven't got a watch. Days are running into days, and into weeks, and into months. How long am I here? If I forget how long I'm here, how will I remember to get out? How will I let them know? It's long now, long enough, too long. I've drawn time in my head, a little stare for each day, then a pause on a little landing, a twist, then it's more stares for the new week. The old week gets all shadowy, then I can't see it too well. It gets really dark, and then I can't see it at all. The new week is light and airy, like a cloud. The weeks ahead are sometimes cloudy, sometimes sparkling like the sun in a lake. Now the weeks have passed into months. I've framed my stairs. Now time is a board game. Every month I step into a new square. I'm not too sure about this, but I can't think of any other way. Eventually I moved from the ward on the middle landing to the verandas. They were built at the back of the house overlooking the gardens. This was pure paradise. They were long, low buildings with stone floors and glass doors, left open whenever possible. The beds were in one long line. There was, of course, a boys' veranda and a girls' veranda, separated by a nursing station. They had been built with TB cases in mind, the idea being to follow the example of Swiss sanatoria, the founder of the hospital, a Robert Lafayette Swan, had gone so far as to test out this kind of cure himself at the beginning of the century. For a number of weeks he slept in his own garden, showered using buckets of water tied to trees, and exercised outdoors. He concluded he was more physically robust for the experience. Of course, he didn't have TB in the first place, but he decided to adopt the lifestyle minus the outdoor showers for his patients. But for me, the veranda meant freedom, to get out of bed, to play outdoors. We had wheelchair races, crutch races, shuffling races. No child was left out. There was a definite hierarchy amongst us, wheelchairs being prized possessions. It was a beautiful thing about being there all together. No one noticed what, if anything, was wrong with anyone else. We accepted each other as we were and adapted our games to suit all. The children on the veranda seemed older, more mobile, some were just convalescing. Though here I realised, more than ever, that this was in fact their home. For some of them, it had been their entire life. I can remember, I can, I can still see myself, I was carried up to the, up to the church, because I hadn't got the caliper on, and a pair of white runners, little kind of pumpy runners, and white stockings. None of us had the calipers on, and we were carried up to the, for the First Communion. I just took back down again. I can remember that as plain as anything. 
can still see the whole crowd of us. Because all the girls and the fellas, we all made it together. And the same with the confirmation. I can remember going to Clonliffe College, made the confirmation. And had a grey, grey dress and a hat, which I didn't like. But I, yeah, I can, I can remember both of them. I can remember the communion more. That always sticks in my mind. The matron um, at the time said to me that uh, they were very concerned about this uh, boy, um, that, that he wasn't well and um, the prognosis wasn't good. And they mentioned that he hadn't been confirmed. He, he'd, he'd made his first communion all right, but he hadn't been confirmed. So um, I, I, I was uh, asked to arrange a confirmation. So I knew nothing about um, the process, procedure there at all. And I rang up the Archbishop's house. And um, now the Archbishop of Dublin at that time was John Charles McQuaid, you know, who was a, <clears throat> a formidable man, like, you know. And um, so I had visions of John Charles McQuaid coming into the hospital to, to, to do this. So I rang the Archbishop's house and I was saying, you know what, well, this child needs to be confirmed and can I arrange for, will the bishop come in to do it? So I was amazed when they said to me, you do it. You know. And at that stage, now I would have been about five years ordained. You know, very green behind the ears, I can tell you. So this to me became um, something you know, tremendously sort of uh, important and, and, and um, I was very surprised that I was given the go-ahead to do it. So I got some spe special delegation anyway from the Archbishop's house to do it. And um, <clears throat> uh, I remember thinking to myself now, you know, that, you know, this is very important and uh, that I, I was going to make it important for the children as well. And um, the Sunday before I did it, I went down to the veranda and I explained to all the children that I would be coming in. I think it was a Monday or Tuesday evening I came in for the confirmation. And I explained to them now that, you know, when I come in next Tuesday, shall we say, I'm going to give a very special sacrament to this child whose name I forget, I'm sorry to say. And um, so they were very impressed and very solemn about it all. And I, I, I mentioned to them that it's only a bishop now can do this. So um, I can still remember that when I walked down, the, there was a kind of a ramp down into the veranda. And I turned left into the left veranda where all the boys were. And the, the, there was a silence where usually there would be singing and talking and calling out. There was a huge silence. And they were all, um, as many, they were all, sta those who could were standing on their beds, holding on to the sides of their cots, you know, looking at me coming in. <clears throat> and I'd put on a kind of a, I suppose a rather ornate uh, surplice, with a bit of lace in it, thing I didn't usually wear. And uh, I remember wearing a red stole, big red stole, because that was the colour of confirmation. And uh, I had the oils and the book. And um, so I came down anyway and I confirmed the lad. 
And I remember when I put my hand on his head, uh, because part there, there is a part of the ceremony called the imposition of hands. And uh, I put my hand on his head, and um, I could feel, you know, how fragile his skull was. You know that, that that's where his problem was. And I gave him the sacrament anyway, and um, and I, when 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 I left anyway, the children were just so quiet all during it and then I left and they, 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 the silence remained they, they kind of made me a, as if they made me a bishop for, for a half an hour or 15 minutes and um, I think the little lad died then sh shortly after that yeah my mother died in my communion and it was, I mean the day was lovely because I went up to stay in the hospital and she died that evening. And I came back and I was very violent in, in the hospital. I broke the windows and everything. But, I mean, I wasn't touched. They didn't do anything to me. They just left me until I got it out of my system and then all the glass was fixed the next day. But nobody, I wasn't, you know, nobody. If anything, they were very comforting to me. They were very good to me. I can remember them all, you know, coming around to me and all the nurses and sisters and there'd be no doctors the doctors only come in every morning there wouldn't be no doctor based so it was just kind of all the nurses and the sisters that's that's kind of how it really stuck in my mind it was the, my mother died it was that evening and yeah I took off to Calibre that's brought back in a car I was in she was in Vincent's and I went to see her on the way back I was at the going you know you get money for the communion I said going and buying loads of sweets and eating them all and then I can't remember I think it was Sister Sister Clark told me that my mother had died or it was one of them was Irene Piggott or Edna Clancy it was one of them come down I was only back and they had come down as I say I can't remember which of them it was but they were, no, they were very nice to me because I was really in a rage smashed up the whole place I was in James just a while ago. I had an accident and I thought out of it I'd never get. It was just when I just, it was just the hospital, it wasn't the staff were lovely. The nurses and lovely doctors and sisters and it was just the hospital, I just hated the hospital. And I used to make it clear to me, I, I didn't, I used to say to me, it's not the staff I hate, it's just the, the hospital. I think it was just the, the word of a hospital, I just hate. Now, do you know what I mean? As I'm getting older and I realised the length I was in Clontarf for. And when I was in, I was in a small room my own, James's, and it's just, the flashbacks of the whole Clontarf was just on top of me. I was just hysterical in the place. They had to take me out and put me in a sixth bed with other people. I was just afraid of my own. I don't recall them being, being crying a lot. They would howl more than cry. And this rocking back and forth all had to do with boredom.
I think the orthopaedic was a wonderful idea. This is with hindsight. I just went in as a 19-year-old and she said, there's the kids, go and teach them and I have to do my diploma or I won't start getting um, my emoluments. I won't go up the salary scale. So I worked like a back and wrote miles of notes and I was also of the same generation as the kids. If you don't do it, you'll be in trouble and when the inspector comes, he'll pick out the bad bit. He won't notice the 99% good bit because I'd seen my mother reduced to tears as a teacher, to, you know, by inspectors in the bad old days. Um... I thought the orthopaedic was a good idea because there was nowhere for the children to go. The polio was frightful. And, of course, the TB was the same old story as it is today. But uh, they did the best, given what they had, which was nothing. And I found a gentleness in it. Just to see somebody come in, one little lad uh, just inside the door, he'd be watching the door, and, oh, and the face would light up, the big smile and the arms would go up, and then if he gave him some sweets... Oh, he was in heaven, in heaven. My overall impression would would nevertheless have been that they were, um, you know, they were high-spirited, they were good to be with. On balance, there was probably more laughter than tears, I would say. I would think there was. It gives you the willpower to keep going, you know, to do what you want to do, and do it, and not just sit back. I think all the girls, because now the couple of girls that was there now with me, I mean, they're all driving cars and all working and everything now. I mean, when we were only all little ones, about 10 and 11, I mean, we, I never thought that we'd be like this today now. I mean, for instance, me living here on my own, have my own house and other girls driving. I could never see that when I was that age. I always thought we were going to be in hospital or homes. I never thought we were going to see the outside world, you know what I mean? We're going to be, always have to be in some form of an institution, a rehabilitation or, or something. I wake in the early hours, dark hours, when the moon is still shining through the big window, or else there is just darkness. The heavy wooden doors are closed, maybe just a crack of light. My world begins and ends in this room, but none of it is mine. Even this bed with the crisp linen sheets isn't mine. It shouldn't be too messy in the morning. Matron doesn't like messy beds. The hospital comes to life slowly in these early hours. I hear the soft fall of a foot on a stair. Nurses calling to each other. Someone searching in one of our lockers for something sweet to eat. I can tell every sound and what it means for the passing of time. The click of the light switch in the pantry on the return and the shuffling of the early morning kitchen staff. Someone in my ward shifting in their sleep, murmuring, murmuring and back to sleep. There is great comfort in sleep. The door creaks and a ghostly blue and white figure comes in to check the tiny crumpled sleeping forms. I pretend I'm asleep. Breathe in, out, in, out. Leave my mouth slightly open. Move a bit if I want to. I watch enough sleeping children to know how they twitch and moan in their sleep. I know they care. I know they do. The way they check each one of us like this in the early morning. And I know they don't. They never stop into bed to watch you. They don't stroke the hair from your face and pet your cheeks like a mother does. They're all so beautiful, 
the sleeping children and so peaceful. And then nurse coughs or her soft white shoes squeak on the lino. Shush, shush, don't wake us. The day would have to begin and it is already too long. But she doesn't hear. She straightens the chair or closes the locker door. Shush, shush. But now she is at my bed. It's at the door and can be seen from the car door and it always has to be straightened. Every nurse that passes in and out straightens my bed. Now she's gone. She never looks back.